It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Welcome, everybody, to Cut to the Chase. I am so happy to have with me former congressional candidate for New York's third congressional district, Robert Zimmerman. Robert, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. It is great to be with you, Laura. First of all, congratulations on the great success of your podcast. Truly a great reaction you're getting, great response you're getting. I just wish we were on talking about better news or more better opportunities or more promising news. I know. So full disclosure, I really wish we were talking about what your plans are going to be in Congress. I think you were, and I said it before, and I'll say it again, absolutely the better candidate, the best candidate. I thought you definitely shone in the primary and you did very well. And I really want to get into what happened, how George Santos won. Basically, let me just, for people who don't know you, I'm going to introduce you. You're founder of ZE Creative Communications on Long Island. It's a very successful PR mm-hmm. firm, formerly known as Zimmerman Edelson. You are also a Democratic National Committeeman, and you're a news analyst. People mm-hmm. are very familiar with your work on CNN and all of the other news channels. And you threw your hat in the ring for Congress. And it sure. seemed right. <laughs> to me, like I said, you were the better candidate, more qualified, more knowledgeable. As I told you at the time, your debate performance far excelled your opponents. I felt he had nothing to say. He had no plan. And then come to find, we all pick up the New York Times a couple of days ago. And on the very front page, above the fold, we find out that your opponent, George Santos, lied about where he went to school or that he even went to school, lied about his nonprofit, lied about jobs that he didn't have, lied about his business, lied about his his religious background, lied about where he lives, lied about losing four employees in a shooting, in a mass shooting, et cetera, et cetera. So it's funny because I spoke to a Republican friend who said, how could my party have allowed this to happen? I spoke to a Democrat and said, how could our party have let this happen? I spoke to someone at the New York Times who said, we really dropped the ball. How could we have allowed this to happen? So everyone's kind of falling on their sword here. How much of this information did your campaign have? As people know, campaigns do opposition research on their opponents to find stuff. Tell me what happened in this case. What did you find? Let's cut to the chase, uh, as you call this <laughs> podcast. And I think it's important to get to that point. You know, I became the Democratic nominee August 23rd. Mm-hmm. I won the primary that night. August 24th, I had 10 weeks till the election mm-hmm. day. I did opera, op, not only did I opposition research on George Santos, or to, more to the point, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee did opposition research on George Santos. I did opposition research personally on myself mm-hmm. because opposition, it was important to do that to make sure there were no outstanding issues in my life, anything I might have suppressed, any complaint I wasn't aware of. That's Thank right. goodness, I came up clean. I came up clean and everything was in order. There were no issues there. But you know, having been a public official yourself, these are the practices one pursued. Right. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee did in fact do opposition research on George Santos. Now, remember, people who do opposition research are not investigative reporters. Mm -hmm. They're not private eyes or private detectives. 
they assemble what they can through public documents and public information. And a number of the items that were in our opposition research were included in the New York Times story. A number of the items that came up in opposition research were the centerpieces of our campaign. For example, George Santos's support for the insurrection movement mm-hmm. and the various statements he made in activity supporting the insurrection movement were a centerpiece of our campaign because he tried to lie about it and try to deny it. Right. His advocacy of a national ban on reproductive freedom, of rep- women's abortion rights, and the way he tried to lie about that, our opposition research exposed that as well. And also, the opposition research also raised many other important questions hmm. that had to be explored. Mm-hmm. For example, the not-for-profit he claimed he established, the various evictions that were reported. And we all, and frankly, I just knew by seeing him in action, nothing added up. Yeah. There were a lot that didn't add up about him. So frankly, we turned to many people in media. For, and that's what you do with opposition research. You go to reporters and journalists. Right. And part of the story here is not that the media dropped the ball. I'm so grateful that the Times did the story, obviously, as a former candidate. I wish they ran that story during election time. Did they have they the information? Did they have, I mean, you... I, uh, you have to ask them. Yeah. They said they spent about a month working on the story. They acknowledged that some of the points in their reporting was also in our invest- our opposition research. Mm. But the point I'm trying to, to make here is that in the work of opposition research that was done, we turned to many, many members of the media because it required investigative reporters and by, it required individuals with the greater resources and time mm-hmm. that a congressional, a local congressional campaign had. For example, the Times reporters said they had about a, over a month for that, about a month for their piece. Plus, of course, they had contacts in Brazil so they could find out George Santos's criminal past in Brazil. The Daily Beast hired a genealogist to trace the fact he was lying about the fact that he claimed that his grandparents escaped from the Holocaust. It's right. despicable and life a lie that is. They hired a genealogist. The congressional campaign doesn't have that, so you turn to the news media. And we were pretty much, we pushed hard to get, get their attention. And quite frankly, the response ranged from, we don't have the money, time, mm-hmm. or staff mm-hmm. to investigate, which is true. We know the news industry is cutting back everywhere. That's very true. And there's no Long Island Beat reporter. To, that could have been very helpful if there were. Yeah. That's right. So it's very difficult in that respect. Also, we had other people say that there were 80 of these types of candidates running around the country. We can't investigate all of them. I had one reporter say to me, actually, you know, if he gets elected, that's a hell of a story. But by and large, the response seemed to be that this guy isn't good. The attitude was he wasn't going to win. It was a low-profile congressional race, and they just wasn't on their radar. They yeah. were focusing in New York City, for New York State, on the gubernatorial race, yeah. which was hotly contested, where crime was a dominant issue. And they were focusing on other races they thought were more competitive. We could try to make the case that our race was a very competitive race. That's and right. We were facing a Republican landslide. That's and right. And the attitude was more to the point, and you know, you live this yourself, more to the point of, well, come on, it's going to be okay. You guys have got this. So there wasn't the attention on the race that it needed to be. It's now, obviously a great source of frustration. But the bigger issue was when we went to the media with so much that we heard and what some of our research that showed that had to be investigated further. We were told they just didn't have the money, staff, or time to do it. Yeah. And that's the great frustration. It's very frustrating. And it's almost like the media, I'm going to make a grand generalization, but it's almost like these reporters thought they were smarter than the voters, that they know how this race is going to turn out. Don't worry. He's not going to win. It's not a story. 
And how frustrating, well, some, some how might, frustrating to hear this is a hell of a story if he wins, but the stakes are so high. If the people had known they were basically hiring a con man, he probably wouldn't have won. I mean, if all of this came to light before, that would have changed the election. And I think I think it's well, I think it's irresponsible of the press to not have followed these breadcrumbs. Well, that, that was the expression of one of the reporters I spoke to. Most of the reporters we went to just didn't have the staff or the personnel of the time to get into it. Which I, and like I, you I say, get that. many of them, many of them felt, oh, come on, this guy, he's not serious. Right. He's a lightweight. He right. can't get elected. And we were telling them it's a big Republican year coming up. And you yep. saw Republican landslide wins outside of New York City yep. on Long Island and Rockland and yep. Hudson. You saw Republican landslide wins even in northeastern Queens. The top of our ticket lost by 13 percent. Mm-hmm. And that was unique in other parts of the state. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, so, so you you essentially, if I may say so, you beat the governor in your district. So you were you faced serious headwinds. And anyone who understood Long Island politics would understand that this was a very, very competitive race. And it should have been taken more seriously. Right. And it should have gotten more attention. And that's frustrating. And we did our best. I mean, we used the opposition research to really speak to issues that were very much the center of public concern. Mm-hmm. And we talked, for example, on his website, he talked about privatizing Social Security, a very big issue in the district. Yeah, we hit on that huge. very hard because he would have ended Social Security as we know it. Some of the more personal issues that were brought up, the scandals about his employment record, yeah. uh, about uh, the lies about his employment record, lies about his faith, lies about his job record, you know, his education record. We knew there were problems there. We, you know, opposition researchers couldn't get the details because. They're not going to turn it over. You know, Goldman Sachs is not going to respond to a political campaign. Yes, right. And and I just want to underscore something you said earlier, Robert, that really nothing compels a school or a bank or a place of business to answer an opposition researcher. They're not a person of authority. It's not a detective, a private investigator. It's not the New York Times. It's just, you know, it's basically a campaign staffer. So they have nothing to lose by saying no comment. So you're not going to necessarily get everything from the campaign as, say, the New York Times or, you know, a, a television station would get. Sure. And that, so obviously, believe me, I know people are frustrated and angry. Trust me, so am I. Yeah. And I hope people don't turn and blame the media because that's not the answer. Yeah. The answer is to support the media. Mm. I must say our local media. Blank Slate Media, mm-hmm. uh, the chain of weekly newspapers on the North Shore of Nassau County, mm-hmm. the North Shore Leader, which covers the North Shore of Nassau and Queens, and mm-hmm. Nassau and Suffolk, rather. They really stepped up, raised important questions. They tried very hard to address these issues and call this out. Mm. Newsday also raised a number of important questions and called out these issues as well. So I give them credit for doing that, enormous credit. But I have to tell you, and I mean this very sincerely, we're dealing with, frankly, such a scaling back of our local media. And without mm-hmm. our local media, it leads to the death of our democracy. Sir Harry Evans, well, one of the great, my goodness, authors and publishers and editors yeah, mine, great of the mind. past century. Mm-hmm. Great mind. Harry always said the point that without local media on the case, it means the death of our democracy because they're the ones who invest the time and effort on these local races. It's so critical. So I, I, I'm are. with you on and that. So, and I'm glad to hear, I'm glad to hear that you're not 
of a blaming mindset. And you're 100% right about local media because you understand the turf, you understand the people, you understand the issues so much better than if you just parachute in. And this is such a different tone. And you uh, have, you, our, our, our listeners should know, you have a very unique perspective like no other because you weren't a local reporter. <laughs> I was, yeah. You were like a public official, headed one, you know, the county executive, one of the largest counties in America. So you've seen it from the government perspective, the political perspective, with yeah. your breakthrough victory, and as a journalist. So you understand it from every angle. And yeah. not too many, I don't know anybody who can say that. So it's quite, quite a distinction. Oh, well, thank you for that. I, I appreciate your lack of self-pity and blame. I'm going to be a little maybe not so kind to your opponent right now, but I'm not hearing that from him. I watched today the city and state interview he did, and it was there was so much self-pity and blaming, you know, saying things like, I'm sorry that I have a life, or, you know, I just put a little bit of fluff in my resume. But the elitist New York Times doesn't think that being working in a call center is important. So basically blaming the New York Times for not having accuracy in his resume because they wouldn't think it was important. I mean, it was just this convoluted, self-pitying, blaming, defensive excuses. And, and it just it just seemed to it, me so, so like I didn't believe a word that he said. Well, Laura, you're talking about a sociopath. I think so. He's I think you're right, Robert. Of, he's not capable of shame. He's not capable of understanding the people he betrayed or lied to. This is a dangerous fraudster. Yeah. And let's just understand what's at stake. You know, he ran two years ago for Congress, ran again. His entire life was shown to be a lie. And I think he is, in fact, an individual who is really a dangerous threat to our country. And I mean that for the following reason. Let's understand, behind all of these lies, underlines one, raises one defining position. He's an individual without a conscience, without a commitment to public service, and he betrayed the trust of the voters of our congressional district. Yeah. And the real scandal's not yet been exposed. And that is not just the fact that he obviously admits to lying about his education, his business, lies about, of course, even his faith and tries to use the Holocaust yeah. uh, as a political stunt. Right. For listeners who don't know, he, he, he claimed that he had relatives. His grandparents escaped the Nazis in the Holocaust. Yeah. It turned out and not trying to be true. trying to use the Holocaust, a complete falsehood. And so uh, think about one of the, the atrocities of the Holocaust, using that for a political punchline. It doesn't yeah. get more disgusting or lower than that. But then you come to the issue of his personal finances. Yeah. How he loaned his own campaign over $700,000 without having maybe $40,000 in the bank. Where did that money come from? He couldn't pay a, a $1,500 credit card bill. That's right. In fact, he literally admitted to the crime of, in fact, Pat writing a bad check. Yeah. And admitted in his interview with ABC Radio that he just evaded a bill, a rent bill of $12,000. He was obligated to pay, court ordered to pay, just forgot about it. Yeah. Just the level, this is the mentality of someone you're dealing with. Now, of course, he claims his assets in two years have grown from 40000 to maybe up to $11 million. He's vague about that, but to millions of dollars. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Right. Were the taxes paid on that? I mean, it raises so many more questions. That's right. Was it all real? Where did the money come from? It's worth noting that the Daily Beast reported that he received over $50,000 from relatives of Russian oligarchs. Yeah. For his campaign. Think about that. And they didn't find him. They didn't find him on America's Got Talent. Yeah. And they didn't pick him up on Tinder either. Okay. Let's be very clear. They marked him for a reason. Mm Mm-hmm. And they gave him the money. And at the same time they're giving him the donations, he's putting out tweets condemning the Ukrainian government and supporting the Russian position, supporting Russia. So it's no coincidence why he got the money. And I think what you're going to see about George Santos is that we know he's boss. That's well demonstrated. The question is who's bought him. Mm. And that's, I think, what the state investigations are going to open up into him and show. Hopefully there'll be a Department of Justice investigation into him as well, because the voters have, the people have a right to know. In fact, our nation, because he's serving in Congress, has a right to know. Where does money come from? What and you're talking about now is so, why did they buy it's so much more serious and important than, than what he calls embellishments and fluff in his resume. For I sure. mean, it's dangerous stuff. Sure. Dangerous stuff. And if you notice in his entire discussion, he doesn't talk about that. He talks about embellishments. He talks about his, which is flat out lies. Okay? Yeah. And like, sorry, but I have a it, life. Ha, ha, ha. Like we've all, yeah, you know, we've all it, done stupid things in our life. Uh, the other thing that I found really just quite galling and very disrespectful of his future colleagues, he said that no other member of Congress or the Senate could have withstood what he has experienced and how they've looked into his life. Like if any of them got similar treatment, none of them would be left standing. You know, it's just extraordinary that he is so self-absorbed and such a, so, I use the word sociopath, that he would have the gall to say that. Fortunately, we are blessed by the fact that most Republicans and Democrats, I can't think of, uh, hold them, you know, we may have our political differences, but at least we, res- we can respect the integrity of most of our public officials. Right. This situation is so unique because it's really not about Republican or Democratic politics. No, it's, it's beyond that. It's about an individual who's violated his public trust, an individual who has broken his word, admitted to lying, committing crimes to his constituents. And that's why today I've called upon George Santos, if that in fact is his real name, mm. to resign from Congress mm. because of the lies and the crimes he's admitted to and face me in a special election. If he's so confident that he's the support of the voters, fine. Let the voters decide who speaks the truth. Let the voters decide who, in fact, can best serve them. Because the George Santos they voted for back in November was a fraud. Yeah. It didn't exist. Now we'll know who the real candidate is. And I think there should be a runoff, a face, a face off between the two of us. How can that happen? What has to happen? From what I well, understand, it's the Congress that controls this once he's seated, correct? Well, I think it's, it requires two-thirds of a vote of Congress to remove him. That's not going to happen. Right. The Republicans need, and Kevin McCarthy needs 218 votes to become Speaker. Yeah, and he's on thin ice. He's not messing with this. He's a, that's right. Let me tell you something. Kevin McCarthy would seat Jeffrey Dahmer if that's what it took <laughs> to preserve his 218 votes to become Speaker. Mm. But that being said, a <laughs> Department of Justice investigation, an investigation by the state attorney general. Mm-hmm. All that's going to be critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and keeping the public pressure on mm-hmm. will be critical Yeah, to make sure that this issue does not get lost. 
Right. You don't lose sight of it. And I tell you something, what we've seen so far, as outrageous and offensive as it is, this is just the beginning. When they start digging into his money, that will tell the story. Yeah. So you're challenging him to a rerun, a redo of the election. Sure, I think off. that makes yeah. a face off. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, if, if I applied for a job at company A and I got the job yeah. based on a resume that was completely false, but I was hired, I mean, I think they would have to, <laughs> they would be within their rights to, oh, to fire gone. me. I mean, I would be gone. This is a similar kind of thing. Right. You talk about lying about the Holocaust and lying about the history of his family to curry favor with voters. And as we know, it's quite a Jewish district, so that seems like pandering. Mm -hmm. And then claiming that he had four employees who died in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. It's more than just pandering. Yeah, It is such a hateful, disrespectful thing to do to the Jewish community. Yeah. It is so offensive on so many levels. I'm so concerned about what that represents because it is so divisive and such a hateful, such a disrespectful, hateful statement to make to the Jewish community. It really is. It shows such a lack of respect for the Jewish community. It demonstrates such a, a lack of compassion yeah. for the atrocity of the Holocaust, a respect for the lives that are lost and the millions of lives that, that yeah. were impacted around the world. Yeah. It is truly the ultimate in anti-Semitic behavior mm. to use the Holocaust as a political stunt. And then he's bragging now after all this has come out. Oh, well, I just got a text from a Jewish friend who's still, who says I'm still an M.O.T., member of the tribe. Yeah, that's because he has no shame. So that's I'm, I'm curious. He cannot be embarrassed. As would be the definition of a sociopath. So when you, you know, you get to know your opponent at least a little bit when you're on the campaign trail, you're at events, You sometimes there's a little small talk, there's a little, you know, how's the family kind of stuff. What was your impression of him just person to person when you would run into him when you would talk to him? I have to tell you, it's the oddest experience. George Santos refused to meet with editorial boards, including Newsday and weekly newspaper editorial boards, and facing a real scrutiny. So he didn't, I remember that at Newsday, but so no editorial boards he would meet with. No editorial boards. Wouldn't meet with Blank Slate Media, didn't meet with North Shore Leader. I don't know if he met with the original editorial boards, but he didn't meet with editorial boards. Mm. He debated me two maybe three times, then he canceled all the debates and wouldn't debate me. His whole strategy was to stay under the radar and just play to the Republican base and hopefully ride the Republican landslide. And that's what happened. Did you you ever um, like chit chat with him? Did you ever get a sense of the man or just a person to person? We talked a few times. It's very funny. Interesting story. We talked a few times. Once he said to me, he he was building a home in Oyster Bay Cove Hmm. and it was so difficult with the permitting process with the town that he just couldn't, it was just taking the heart out of it from him and he was probably going to sell the property. Hmm. He volunteered it. All right. I later find out, of course, he never owned a home in Oyster Bay Cove or anywhere in Oyster Bay. It was a completely delusional, fictitious statement hmm. that he made to me. And it's funny, just Sunday, this past Sunday, I think, the Sunday before the, the Sunday at the beginning of Hanukkah, he sends me a text wishing me a happy Hanukkah. Hmm. I just wrote back, happy holidays to you. I let it go with that. But it was just very odd because there was always a sense of uh, not just awkwardness, but clearly, as I mentioned before, a few times I was with him, clearly nothing added up. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what, so it is up to, I just, I, I don't have this straight in my head. What has to happen? I mean, 
he can ride this. Well, if, if, McCarthy, if, they, if McCarthy becomes a speaker and McCarthy doesn't call a vote, and even if he did, it, he probably wouldn't win. He can just coast, right? Unless there's some sort of, of investigation that finds him guilty of a crime. But even then, can he continue to serve? Well, here's the, here's the issue. If he, in fact, is indicted, and who knows? We can't get ahead of ourselves. There yeah. have to be investigations. Right. I believe there'll be a House Ethics Committee. I find it interesting watching the politics. Yeah. Both Congressman D'Esposito and Congressman Nicola Loda. Yeah, what are they both saying? Republicans from Long Island. Yeah. They stepped up calling for a House Ethics Committee investigation. Huh. And further investigations if required. Now, that's important and significant when two Republican members of Congress who are from Long Island step up and make that statement. And it's worth reflecting on that for a moment. It right. shows that Republicans recognize what a risk he is and what a danger he is. And embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It's going to be hard in too. two years. Exactly right. right. They're going to have pictures with them together, you know, the whole nine yards. We know how that goes. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So there, that's clearly a, a factor. And so we'll see what the politics is and what the pressure in, on him is. How said ethics investigation can lead to various steps that can be taken. Department of Justice can t- also lead to actions. But we must have the investigations begin. Yeah. Since He should resign, but probably won't. We need the investigation. The public has a right to an accountability here, a right to a public accounting. Absolutely. And as you say, he's serving in Congress, so this is important for the entire country. And, you know, this not-so-talented Mr. Ripley, you know, if he can do this so easily, (laughs) will others be able to do it as well? And then I think it's really important for the authorities to follow the money. Where did his campaign money come from? I mean, if this Daily Beast report turns out to be correct— which it sounds like they did their research uh, with yep. the oligarchs, the and then he's coming out, you know, supporting the Russians in the U- in the war in the Ukraine. I mean, that's just unfrickin' believable. Robert, let's say he coasts, he's in, he you know does whatever he does in Congress. Will you run again in two years against him? You know something? I'm fairly certain he will not be the nominee in two years. Yeah, that's true. But. but I have to tell you, though, more to the point, right now, I want to keep the focus on George Santos. This is not about me. It's not about my plans or my political ambitions or my political beliefs. It's really my goals. It's really about bringing Republicans and Democrats together to take on the kind of deceit, the corruption, the crimes that George Santos represents, because we have to come together demanding accountability and ethics of our public officials. That's got to unite us. And we it's can have in- our political differences, and that's all well and good. Right. We have to come together as one community in demanding that our public officials be held to ethical standards. And it's in the Republicans' interest to do this because this is such an erosion of public trust. These stories that are going to continue yeah. to come out every day. There are new. There's new allegate, new stories, new facts coming out, mm-hmm. and this will just more cripple the trust in government and in politics. It's already at quite a low. And there are some really good public servants on both sides of the aisle who are in it for the right reasons, who want to do good work. But it's these kinds of stories that make the public cynical. And frankly, you can't blame them. Now, by the way, they should be cynical when you see a story like this. It It undermines the public's trust in every aspect of public service. And that's what's so wrong. And that's why there has to be a a coming together of both parties to demand accountability, because by calling out corruption, by calling out the lies and the corruption of George Santos, when both parties do it together, they're elevating our public discourse. They're restoring the fact that both parties can rise above partisanship to restore integrity to public service. 
Amen. And we all have a role to play here, whether you are just a regular person living your life, you know, get informed, know what's happening. If you're in politics, if you're in media, always look to see what the truth is, what's going on. Ask the question. And you deserve, you deserve politicians that you can at least trust. You may not agree with them, but you deserve people in public service who you elect, who you hire. Remember, we're (laughs) the people are at the head of the organizational chart. You're the boss. You deserve leaders that you can trust. That is for sure. That is well put. And ultimately, we have to remember why voting is so important, why an engaged public is so important. Amen. Because no matter what party you're in, what our public officials do impacts our lives, and it's way bigger than partisan politics. It's about the safety and security of our nation. Mm -hmm. It's about the future of our country and the future of our families, building a strong and safe America. And it really matters. Robert, I want to thank you for being a fantastic candidate, a good friend. Thank you. And I appreciate your honesty and and your, you know, your work ethic. You're the full package. And I I really wish you had won. (laughs) I'm so grateful to you, Laura. Thank you so much for everything, for your leadership and your friendship. It means so much to me personally. Thank you. I can't underscore it enough. I'm so grateful. Thank you. And I look forward to to speaking with you soon. I hope to have you back sometime. Be my pleasure. All right. Look forward to it. Sounds good. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Dear listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in to Cut to the Chase. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe. Give us a good rating. Uh, tell your friends. Share it. And we're just going to continue to Cut to the Chase. Peace out. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.